as you're developing insight into uh, impermanence and emptiness and no self, as part of that, you you recognize more and more clearly that the true root of suffering, even beyond desire and aversion, is the perception of yourself as a separate entity in a world of separate entities that you must struggle with in order to obtain happiness and avoid pain. But that is the true source of suffering, because that's the source of the desire and aversion you feel. But no matter which, which of the insight vehicles happens to present itself to you, ultimately you're going to penetrate all, all of them, all three of them. So thank you. That was a great question. Okay, so everyone knows more or less what this whole awakening business is about, what the heck insight has to do with it. Some ideas of how insight develops. The relationship with mindfulness to insight, yes. I think I missed that chapter on on the developing of insight. I for for me it, it seems like sometimes I get one, sometimes I don't. And it isn't 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 something that emerges like from a photographic emulsion. You don't get fuzzy insight and then dwell and then say oh oh oh, oh yeah oh. for me it's yeah. like wow that, that's something or and i either get one of those or i don't well we can distinguish between insight experiences and insight and life is filled with insight experiences for the simple reason that we are a part of and dwell within ultimate reality, whatever terms you want to use for that. But we're part of it, inseparable from it. And, and although we project our illusions onto it, it's what's really there. So there are, we're constantly having experiences which reveal the true nature of things, but we don't recognize them. Uh, and some of those experiences are pretty minor little peaks, whereas others are, you know, the whole the whole veil of illusion is stripped aside long enough for us to uh, have an experience of of the fact that it is an illusion. So there are there are insights, and here to keep in mind. I'm, I'm not talking about mundane insights. I'm talking about super mundane insights into these characteristics of impermanence, emptiness, no self, suffering. So they're happening all the time. Sometimes they're little and sometimes they're big. And meditation is conducive to big ones. But even big insight, major insight experiences in meditation can be missed. You know, uh, one major insight experience is when you have the experience of everything 
just dissolving into a kind of vibratory you don't know what and you, you lose all sense of being grounded in reality and you can either recognize that wow that's really all that there is anyway and my mind just projects this reality on that stuff or you can get up from that experience and frustration and say my meditation was spoiled I had this thing happen <laughs> So insight is not the same as insight experiences. And insight experiences are more numerous than insights. But what you're talking about is insight. That's the aha moment. And at least in that moment, it, 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 it is that. It's, a, it's an eye-opener. But even there, there are there are different degrees to which that particular experience is going to clarify your understanding and, and your perceptions. It's going to bring about a certain degree of realization. Now, <clears throat> all you can do is practice which creates the causes and conditions for strong insight experiences and through to whatever degree through study and things like that, you gain a grasp of what it is you're trying to understand. These, these are the only things you can do to prepare yourself for insight. So doing the meditation practice and studying the Dharma, these are preparations for insight. But you can't make these experiences happen. They'll happen when they will. And whether or not that experience yields insight is going to depend on how you're, how well prepared your mind is. Yeah. What about the insights we have when we're not meditating? Uh, well, you can have insight experiences when you're not medi meditating, and you can have super mundane insight when you're not meditating. It's basically the same thing. You know, uh, the truth is staring you in the face all the time, and you may be walking down the street or having a conversation or who knows what, when all of a sudden, you know, the curtain opens. And the, the same thing is true, that, you know, you, you can't control when it's going to happen. And if the mind is ready, though, it will, it will result in insight. There is one other thing you can do. It's very important to do, I should mention to you. When you've had insight, either in meditation or in your daily life, one of the most important things to do is afterwards keep seeing how this is true. Right? If you had an in insight into no self, for example, and a couple of days later it's lost its clarity. But you can still, from, from the moment you have that insight on, you can still keep seeing and reminding yourself how, wow, I'm not really the self that I think that I am. You know, that, that, oh, oh, there's another little evidence of the illusion of the story that I tell myself of who I am. And it's very important to do that. When you have an insight, just keep, keep it going. Yeah. 
ones that have been suggesting themselves to me yeah. about how things really are are things that um, I actually need permission to believe them because mm-hmm. I've been so schooled that that normal people don't think those things and 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 I've got a lot riding on 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 I know I, I, I can stand there and I can see oh that's just you having a lot riding on being normal and, and you know I can absolutely sit there and, and parse and jabber and talk about that hamster wheel mm-hmm. but all that really does is drag me rapidly far from the insight because it's exactly like you said yay that couple of days sometimes you'll get an insight and if you're not prepared for it you just go oh that's something what's on TV yeah, that's and right. um, and there's a I can I can see the part of me that's going <laughs> I really think we should go watch TV now. Yes. And, it's, and it's a very desperate says, and urgent... Yeah, it, it says, yes, this is really scary. Let's go watch TV. Yes, yeah. and it's not, I missed it. It's, oh, I got that. Now what? Yeah. Well, this is exactly why you can't just have an inside experience and boom, that's it. You know, it's, Our minds are, are, are complex. It's a mind system, many minds, more or less... You know, operating more or less autonomously. You know, and it's one thing to have a few of them get it when the rest of them don't get it yet. There's more work to be done, and that's exactly what you're describing. Yes, and, well. and 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 it's just like a little comic book character, two-year-old going, no, 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 and 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 yet even that, you, if you weren't really a piece of the two-year-old is getting it, mm-hmm. or they wouldn't be panicking and saying, no, 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 either. Yeah. If you really miss it, then you just don't worry about it. You go watch TV. That, that's right. The ones, the ones that are reacting that way are the parts of your mind that can see that this is probably true, but they see it's going to totally mess up the way they've been operating. It's, it's, definitely, it's definitely perturbing the model. Now... This, this, if I could just have permission to not believe that I'm off my meds when I see that, uh, then, then, you know, it might, it might be a little easier to take. But like I said, there's tremendous training in my history where almost all of these little things that you could see have been anticipated and specifically prescribed against. Well, one of the things that mindfulness does is, if we practice it regularly, it gets us in the habit of recognizing that our programmed reactions and responses don't really serve us that well, and it gets us used to the idea that there's a lot of things about the way our minds work that can really stand to be reprogrammed. And that, that takes away a lot of the resistance. It doesn't necessarily take away all of the scariness, especially um, 
the toughest thing that can happen for somebody is, hey, they're really clear on this impermanence and emptiness stuff. Yeah, my mind is is making up this story about the world and all these people and what's happening, you know, and, and uh, I, I can really see that I, I'm doing that. But at the same time, I don't want to believe that exactly the same thing's true of me. That I am just as empty as everything else. I am just as impermanent as everything else. That is scary. And when the part of your mind is holding on, has been holding on to that really strongly, and you haven't had the kinds of insights that weaken the grip of that belief, all of a sudden, you're being thrown into a really scary place. You know, I got used to being, to, to living in a world that wasn't what it appeared to be. But now, the same thing is going to be applied to me, uh, to my precious self. Oh, mm-hmm. you know. And, and so that's how it can sometimes be scary and painful. Uh, in different people's journey, things will happen differently. It won't be the same for everybody. If if you have a lot of insights into the illusoriness and the emptiness of yourself, then that will accumulate and that will really lead the process and it won't be painful and it won't be scary and it won't it'll be exciting. You know, if the first thing you've given up was the attachment to I and the whole process. And yeah, I'm not saying giving it up entirely, but the first thing that you've loosened the grip on is the attachment to I. Then, as the other things come along, hey, you know, this is this is a piece of cake. But you can't control that either. Some of us are going to some of us are going to have that kind of insight, and some of us are going to have other kinds of insights. And so, how the process unfolds is going to be a little different for each person. The last time I picked up a textbook. It was, uh, I was skimming through, I think it was the three pillars of Zen. And and I do mean skimming, I mean rocket reading. And then I, I slowed down because there was this whole argument that, what, that that whole book seems to take for granted that when you get insight, when you get enlightenment, it's going to be a flashbulb light. They're, they're very much this all or none, where you've talked about, sometimes you have a little bit of enlightenment. And yeah, no, it's the, the sudden enlightenment versus gradual enlightenment. And the, really, if you get into the, if you, if you get into that more deeply, you find that they're not as different as they appear to be. Oh, that's a relief. It's, because I, I yeah. like, I, I was like, wait, no, I got too much on my dance card already. I'm going to put this book down because I'm busy listening to you right now. And, um, and you say they're not that different, so okay, that's fine. Because um, I don't actually expect... It's, it's, it's a way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. And it's directly related to another way of looking at it that says, uh, well, we're all already Buddhas anyway. Versus they, well, my Buddha nature is layered over with a whole lot of crap that I got to get rid of first. <laughs> and when you get down to the practical details of it, there's not so much different. Within the Zen sudden enlightenment 
that's cool. You have you have this satori, you have this awakening, and then your teacher tells you, okay, you got a whole lot more work to do. This is just the beginning. <laughs> and you and if you look at it, well, you've already spent who knows how many years staring at the wall. Right? Yeah. So Sudden is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> so, so it's like the argument of the actors who spend 15 years toiling to be overnight discoveries. Yes, exactly. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the world's full of overnight successes. Right? <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. Okay. So... One last little thing, just, you know, I keep mentioning the, the three characteristics that you have insight into, and I always mention four things. Anybody find that confusing? <laughs> Call out of the week. The three characteristics are impermanence, emptiness, no self, and suffering. You probably figured that out, right? So, um, impermanence really means there, there is only change, nothing. There are no things. Impermanence means there are no things. There's only process. Emptiness means even the process is a projection of your mind. No self means that not only is the world impermanent and empty, you are too. Okay. And suffering means that when you cling to things that are impermanent and empty for the sake of a self that's impermanent and empty, you're in for a rough ride. <laughs> but the, in the history of the Dharma, the Buddha originally said there is uh, impermanence, there is no self, and there is suffering. And then, because it's very easy to interpret impermanence, to misinterpret impermanence as meaning there is a world of things, but they just don't last very long. Okay? And that's not impermanence. There are no things. The, uh, the sixth patriarch of Zen, the most famous thing he said, he, wrote, he, he said a lot of wonderful things in the, the Sutra of Queen Yang, but he said, ultimately there is no thing. And that, that's essentially what impermanence is. It's also what emptiness is about. But because there were people who were clinging to the idea that, well, there is a world of things, they just don't last very long. Others said, you know, you didn't get it, let me try to explain it to you. That you think there's things out there that are self-existent, and they're not. They exist dependent upon causes and conditions and the parts that make them up. Not only that, you think there are things out there that have a particular nature, but they don't. They don't have a self-nature. They only have whatever nature your mind projects on it, which is different than what some other mind might. So, therefore, 
all those things out there are empty of the characteristics that you attribute to them. They're not just empty of, of limitless endurance. They're empty of being things at all. They're, they're just parts of the whole process. So that's where the idea of emptiness got introduced. Those guys went a little too far in the sense of saying, saying, yeah, and that's the most important thing is to realize that this whole world of objects you see is empty. And the danger of that is instead of having a real insight, you're left thinking, I'm real, the world is. That's a really bad place to find yourself. Very dangerous place to find yourself. I'm real, but the world isn't. And what what the three characteristics are really telling you is the world is not what it appears to be, neither are you. Not only are there no things, there is no self, which is how the Buddha originally put it. Impermanence, no self. But you could also say emptiness of self. Another way of identifying the three characteristics is emptiness of the world, emptiness of self, and the suffering that comes from clinging to empty things. So that's why when I'm talking about the three characteristics, I often use four words. Can I just make a comment? Yes. When you were just talking, I was just thinking, it's just a, it's amazing that we can communicate at all. such <laughs> <laughs> varying perspectives of worlds colliding all the time. But, That's all. Could you say that again? I, I didn't... It just seems amazing that we can actually communicate with each other at all. Oh, that we yeah. can have any sort of communication with such a huge variety of perspectives um, colliding yeah. with each other all the time. That is a tremendous, wonderful, that in itself is, is an insight. Um, another way of interpreting these characteristics is in terms of the interpenetration uh, of everything that appears to be independent. That's really what, that's really what no self, no, uh, uh, no nature of self-existence means, is that absolutely everything is interpenetrated. So one aspect of understanding emptiness is that I can never really know who you are. All I can ever know is my projection of you. And not only that, neither one of us can ever even know what it is that you're looking at and that I'm feeling in my hand. All that we can ever know is each each of our projections out. That is one aspect of emptiness, that the nature of objects is projected by our own mind on, on something that is not a self-existent object and has no self-nature. But then that would lead you, yes, to the question, well, my gosh, if everything's empty and everybody sees whatever their mind leads them to see, yeah, how do we ever communicate at all? How do I, you know, am, am I totally lost in a world of my uh, dream world of my own fantasy? Well, we're not, because the reality behind that involves the interconnectedness and interpenetration of everything. And we are all connected in this way. Uh, there is ultimately 
something that accounts for my experience of holding an object and your experience of seeing an object. And there is also likewise something that accounts for how each one of us might see that object differently. But that doesn't throw us into some nebulous vacuity of, of non-being and unknowingness. It, what it does is it tells us that our shared perceptions are relative, they're not ultimate. Uh, and if we would go deeper into understanding how this relative, how this conventional, conventional shared, use those words, this conventional shared reality of things that appear more or less the same to all of us. Well, they appear more or less the same to all human beings because human beings have a similar kind of mind. They appear more or less the same to a whole group of animals that have sense organs fairly similar to ours, you know, an eye with a retina at the back and different colored pigments. So to birds and dogs and deer and things like that, although they look different than they would to any human, they also look similar in some ways to other humans. Whereas a fly has a completely different kind of eye. And how a fly sees something is even more different. And then an amoeba with just an eye spot, of course, is have totally different perception of reality, which is not going to include objects like that. It just doesn't have the capacity. But everything is interconnected. We human beings all have similar minds, uh, and, and, and our minds are not that dissimilar from a whole lot of other organisms. So, what is this mind? This kind of completes the circle here, because we're going to say, oh, is my mind and your mind, are these two independent, self-existent things? Well, everything else we know about reality says, no, they can't be. There are no independent, self-existent things. So whatever mind is, it must reflect exactly the same interconnectedness. And so, in truth, what our individual minds do in order to perform their function of creating the experience of individuality so that we can fulfill Mother Nature's need to have us survive and reproduce. So, in our, our minds in order create this feeling of individuality and separateness and wall us off from mind in the larger sense, or other minds, or however you want to think of it. But that that's not a very solid wall. And if we get right down to it, more communication is taking place between our minds in other ways than verbal, or even visual through body language, or things like that. And if you reflect on human history, <coughs> and you think if we allow our minds to project as an object, knowing it's empty, but project as an object, the human mind, the 
shared mind of mankind, you can see that there is a progressive <coughs> development that takes place that characterizes history. And we're all participating in that. So when we say that someday all sentient beings will become enlightened, you know, what we mean is the process that happens in what appears to be individuals here and there is just a part of a larger process that we're all a part of. That's good news. <laughs> That's good news. It is good news. And then once you know that, then you can stop worrying about it and just do your best to, <laughs> to get there. You don't have to get slowed down by worrying that, well, maybe, maybe I'm not going to get there. Maybe it's not worth doing. Maybe it's a well mistake. Which is all part of preparing the soil to practice the Dharma. You need to have... I mean, why on earth practice the dark? And so what's what are you gonna give me? The Baptists down the street are gonna give me heaven if I behave. And what do I have to give in exchange for it? What do I have to do? So the only way you're going to practice the Dharma effectively is if you have some understanding, reasonable understanding of where it's going, uh, and and a certain degree of conviction, we could call it faith. But there's good faith that supports you in your activities, and there's bad faith. Uh, maybe that's not. There's there's the kind of there's a harmful kind of faith that blinds you and deprives you of uh, the use of all of your resources. And what you really want is an understanding that leads to faith, confidence, conviction. Um, and the other mental factors that are necessary for you to successfully apply yourself. So, when, when you start practicing this dharma, you make awakening your goal. You need to understand where you're going, why. It helps a lot to understand how you get there and the steps along the way. And of all the different parts of your mind with their different inclinations, you've got to have enough of them convinced that this is worth doing, that the outcome of doing this is going to be a sufficient benefit to the whole that you perceive yourself. That's the only way you'll do it. As long as it's something that sounds kind of interesting, then you'll be a dabbler. But then when you develop that degree of conviction, which is basically, I can do this, I can do this, I want to do this, this is worth doing. And as it matures, you'll eventually come to the point where, matter of fact, I can't think of anything else that's worth doing. And then, then you're really on track. Uh, you've prepared the soil really, really well. So you want to, you want to do those things. 
as part of your practice, you want to seek the kind of understanding that's going to give you the motivation you need. And also the kind of understanding that gives you the clarity you need in order to apply yourself most effectively. Another thing that's very important is reward and satisfaction. Now, this at least is the way that I can offer you something better than the Baptists on the street. <laughs> they say, if you behave yourself after you die, you'll go to hell. Right? Which, you know, I hope that's true because we're going to all behave ourselves anyway. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that if you practice this Dharma, your life's going to get better in many ways, right from the beginning. And we talked about that. Good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. It just gets better. Because awakening is just when it gets really, really good. But it should be getting better all of the time. And an interesting thing about the specific practices that we do as a part of this Dharma, the meditation practices that lead to unification of the mind, a unified mind is a joyful mind. One way of describing the unified mind is the mind in its natural state, which is a bit of odd phrasing, because what we're saying is, is almost everybody's mind normally is not in a natural state, because it's a mind, uh, everyone's mind is a mind divided against itself, which is why it's a mind that's not in a state of joy. And because it's not in a state of joy, it's not experiencing the kind of, of happiness that it's capable of. But a unified mind is a joyful mind. And our meditation practice is intended to bring about a unification of the mind. But there's an interesting kind of feedback thing between joy and unification. Not only is a unified mind a joyful mind, but a joyful mind is considerably more unified than a non-joyful mind. So one of the ways to bring about a unification of your own mind is to cultivate joy. Now, for that to make sense, we have to explain. Joy is not the same thing as happiness or pleasure. Although in English we don't usually make a distinction, we kind of, well, if you look in the dictionary, you'll find that joy and happiness and pleasure are different, but in the way we're used to using them, they're not. Um, in Pali, the language that the Buddhist, uh, the Buddhist teachings are written in, they make a really clear distinction. They say that joy, piti, is a mental state, whereas pleasure, happiness, is a feeling, two very different things, but they're related. Now, you know when something happens that makes you feel good, your mind shifts into a different state, in a different state of mind, right? And what you might also have noticed is when you're in that state of mind, 
everything you experience is better than it would otherwise be. Or we could say, when you're in a state of joy, more things feel good. And the more things feel good, the more joy. And what's behind all this joy is, is unification of the mind. So, our goal in meditation being to unify the mind, if we practice cultivating a joyful state of mind at all times, we're going to have more success in our meditation. And then, as we become successful in our meditation, and when we get up from the cushion, we get up with a more unified mind. It's going to be in a more joyful state. So, this will lead to your life progressively becoming a, a better experience. Then there's the stage in meditation where we have the pity and sukha, and we're feeling physical and mental joy, but we have to get beyond that. Well, there there is kind of a myth that is circulated in some Buddhist circles that you can get trapped by joy and happiness. Hmm. I and it's it's kind of a myth um, because. When when the mind becomes unified, there's a very intense joy that happens. A lot of energy associated with it. And it's such a remarkable, unusual thing, and it's so wonderful that it's very easy for a person to have the thought that, wow, this must be it. I must be enlightened now. I don't need anything else. I just stay like this the rest of my life. That's all I need. Um, People do make that mistake. They experience piti and sukha, joy and pleasure, joy and happiness. It arises in meditation and they think, oh, this is it, I've achieved the goal. Because compared to how they've been living their life previously, it seems pretty darn good. The thing is, after you've been there a while, it's, it's, it's not the same. For one thing, the initial arising of joy is very frenetic the energy gets to be uncomfortable after a while. And you actually begin longing for tranquility. Joy matures into tranquility. And as it does so, you develop equanimity. And this is going to happen. Now, you could get really caught up in the joy thing. But if you continue to practice, it's only a matter of time before you're going to, before the joy is going to mature. I can't imagine it really being a, a, a trap. I think it's one of those things that sounds like it ought to be. <laughs> but it's just not the way it works in my experience or the people that I've worked with. It's a, yeah, everybody's always really quite enthusiastic and inspired when they experience joy. And that's, that's completely normal. But I've never felt like I needed to tell somebody, well, you know, <laughs> don't get too attached to this. <laughs> because I just wait, and, you know, it usually doesn't take very long before, at least if they continue practicing. The worst thing that can happen, I think, I have seen this, is that a person achieves a state of joy uh, and somebody in a state of joy looks pretty attractive to other people around them. And they stop practicing and instead start playing the guru thing. 
what will happen is they'll lose their joy. Though gradually, the true joy that came from unification of mind will be replaced by the very transient enjoyment of the adulation of others. And then, instead of practicing, they're trying to get more and more of this stuff because it's fading away as fast as they get it. That's, a, that's probably the most serious outcome. But if you continue practicing it, it won't be a problem. Yeah? Can you explain, if, if unification of the mind brings joy and all this good things, how come you can't just put on a trans magic or a drum or something and achieve the same effect? I mean, why doesn't that work? To put on what? Put on trance music or to drum or to do, you know, maybe even kayak or rock climb. I mean, people pursue those things, I think, because of the unification, but it doesn't lead, at least in my experience, to a particular well, state of yes. Uh, that's it's a very good point you raise. You can think of all kinds of people, things that people do that lead to a temporary unification of mind. This is why people have hobbies, you know. And it's Saturday afternoon, and all I've got to do is my hobby thing, and I'm totally into it. And there will be a certain degree of unification of mind, and there there can be joy. It can be rather intense joy. Uh, the positive psychologists like Csikszentmihalyi Haley describe this as the flow experience. And we spend our lives seeking flow experiences because they unify the mind and they bring, they, they bring joy. But there's a big difference between training your mind to unify itself and bringing about a temporary unification through some external process or activity. So the answer is yes, people are all of the time trying to find ways to put themselves in a state of joy. Uh, sometimes they're fairly innocuous ways. Sometimes people take joy in uh, activities that are beneficial to others. Um, of course, sometimes people seek unification of mind and joy in rather unwholesome ways. But the point whether it's unwholesome or whether it's something that benefits others, it's you're arriving in that place through the agency of empty and impermanent things and processes and circumstances and situations. As you all know, you can't do the thing that gives you joy all the time and sometimes something will happen that will keep you from ever doing the thing that gives you joy. As a matter of fact, for sure, eventually something's going to happen that keeps you from doing the thing that gives you joy. If the thing that gives you joy is skiing, someday you're going to get too old to ski. If the thing that gives you joy is mathematics, someday you're part of your mind that does math isn't going to work as well anymore. Can I just follow up just a little bit? Um... It seems like it's the same thing, whether you're focusing on math or breath. And I would think the difference is the, the introspective awareness. Because I really can't see the difference between focusing on the breath and focusing on my model airplane. Well, <clears throat> the difference is that when you're focusing on the breath, as you go along in through the stages of the training, Actually, in the sixth and the seventh stages, you're really 
learning. You're not learning. Your mind is training itself to become unified. Um, and that's the biggest difference. It's, and, and even at that point, there's not even that much sense of, I'm doing this, I'm achieving this. It's more, my mind is doing this to itself. But they do not need to exclude each other, right? I know oh, when no. I'm in a better mind frame, my creativity is flowing too differently. Yeah. So the thing is, when you said skiing, the example of skiing, one time you can't do it anymore, it doesn't mean to stop it and you still can it, yeah. when you still can do it. You know what I'm saying? So it belongs together. Uh, it's not an either or uh, creation of where you get your joy and your... your uh, yeah, absolutely. It's not either and, and, Really what happens is that as your mind becomes more unified in itself, uh, it resides in a stronger state of joy, which means that you can, you can achieve the same satisfaction even more so than before. So a meditator who loves to ski, you know, as their mind becomes unified, on the one hand, skiing with a unified mind is going to be an even more intensely pleasurable experience. And on the other hand, when they can't ski anymore, they'll find it really easy, all kinds of other things that they do which will provide the same satisfaction. Because joy is a mental state that in terms of the effect it has on you, it will cause your attention to be occupied preferentially by the good, the beautiful, the wholesome. And it will and your attention will tend to disregard when possible that which is ugly and unpleasant and unwholesome. I mean your attention is still going to deal with things it has to deal with. But your a, a mind that's in a state of joy, if there's something beautiful there and there's something ugly there, and I have absolutely no reason in the world to pay attention to that ugly thing, I won't. I'll pay attention to the beautiful thing. And that's that is one aspect of the state of joy. Another is that it affects how our feeling response to any experience that we have. And every experience is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And it shifts us on that scale. So what was just kind of pleasant is really pleasant. What was neutral is pretty pleasant. What was unpleasant, slightly unpleasant or mildly unpleasant is neutral. It doesn't bother you at all. And what was really unpleasant is just mildly unpleasant. It shifts your perception in terms of feeling tone in a particular direction. And the third thing, it has a powerful effect on the way your mind processes experience, the constructions it creates around it. And I find the easiest way to express that is whatever experience you are engaged with, it's perceived in the glass half full rather than the glass half empty. So that's that's what a joyful state of mind is. The pleasure and happiness are actually products. They're separate. 
if the state that allows that kind of joy and happiness, that kind of pleasure and happiness to occur. And so what this means is that the more joyful your mind is, then the more you're going to find yourself living in a world of good and beauty, experiencing more satisfaction and pleasure from everything, and seeing everything in a more positive light. And the opposite of a state of joy is a state of, of, of grief or sadness or depression. What happens there? We notice all the nasty, not the good. Everything feels worse. Even, even chocolate doesn't taste as good. And not only is the glass half empty, it's got a hole in the top. <laughs> oh. oh, man, I'm so stealing that. <laughs> so, cultivating a state of joy allows you to live in a state of greater pleasure and happiness. Now, where this applies in meditation is, I'm sitting down here, I'm trying to train my attention to be stable, I'm trying to train my awareness to be powerful, and uh, some part of the mind saying, ah, I don't want to do this, I'm do something else instead. But if you, as to the degree that you can find that process to be pleasant, then more parts of your mind will say, hey, maybe this isn't such a bad thing. As your mind becomes more unified, it becomes more joyful, or it becomes more joyful, it becomes more unified. So cultivating joy actually makes your meditation process more powerful, more effective, and you, you get to where you need to get more quickly. So cultivate joy. That's a very important part of preparing, preparing soil for the Dharma practice. It is 8.34. Anybody who wishes can leave. Anybody who would like to ask some questions can stay and ask questions. Well, I think the whole of your lecture has, has probably answered this, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it anyway. Um, even though I've been doing this a while, it is often difficult for me to commit to one 40-minute duration all at once. And, and it's just, it, there's, it's, it's exactly the same experience I have when practicing a musical instrument. There's, I don't want to go practice, but the minute you pick up the instrument, it's like, gosh, what took me so long. Yes, That's exactly. Great. But there, and, and, and you see that, that snap over into, I don't want what was stopping me. And it's just that quick. And the same exact thing is happening with my practice. And I was going to ask if it would be okay to sneak up on it by having lots and lots and lots of 30-second meditations. Lots and lots of, oh, this is pretty good. Okay. Oh, here's another one. Okay. But you have, in the past, you have said, well, the quality of your meditation is pretty much going to suck. And well, uh, but you said sneak up on it. Yes, by offering many thirty-second increments, many, 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 lots of them. Well, then, if, then, if that works to get you to the place where you sit for longer, then 
That's great. I endorse that totally. Well, I mean, like, if I'm, you know, wandering around doing tasks, and I might as well, okay, I've watered the plant. Okay, I could do 30 seconds standing right here. Uh, but this, this, that, that, but that's just exactly like I used to sneak up on my instrument, just <laughs> go over and you know do something, and then set it down and 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 that it, you're still doing that wire together, fire together thing. Yeah. So. You, so sorry. Well, yeah, there's nothing wrong with any any way that gets you over the obstacle. The, the point is to get past the obstacle. But like you know, I know. Probably many of you have had the experience to say, okay, I'll meditate just for five minutes, though. Somebody says, okay, as long as it's just for five minutes, and then five minutes is up, it's like, no reason to quit. This is going pretty well. So, yeah. The truth is that procrastination, laziness works primarily through procrastination. It keeps you from beginning. Once you begin, it gets easier. And that's just laziness? It's, it's what's commonly known as laziness. It's actually a mechanism that's built into our human brains to keep us from wasting time uh, doing things that aren't worth doing. Um, laziness, every, every invent, invention of any significance in the world has ultimately been the result of laziness. Can, there must be an, an easier, better way to do this. So we call it laziness, and it seems kind of pejorative, but it's actually, in terms of our uh, genetic ingrained psychological endowments, it serves us really well. You know, laziness keeps us from wasting our time on fruitless activities, and laziness encourages us to devise better and more effective ways of doing things. But the laziness as a, as a trait, as a mental trait, is always there. It's never going to go away. And up to a certain point in your practice, every time it comes time to go sit down and practice, the laziness thing is going to kick in and say, you know, is this really the best thing that we can do for the next 45 minutes? <laughs> and, but that only operates effectively prior to beginning the activity. Once you begin the activity, it gets much, much easier. Okay, but, it's, but we can see the term laziness as a pejorative or... Just a second ago, you said it's also a font of creativity. Okay, that's the lazy I want to be, the font of creativity part. Because I, I... Okay, great. That's the approach you should take. Now, what you want to do is to figure out some way to become awakened without having spent all that time meditating. So what I suggest you do is you get into it and figure out exactly how this meditating is going to wake you up so you can find a better way. <laughs> Gosh, yeah, oh, that's no. the ticket. <laughs> I mean, washing machines weren't invented by somebody who never did laundry. <laughs> they were invented by someone who hated doing laundry. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. But, but, okay, then... Then you get into a whole other argument of all this matter. 
that's okay. always going on anyway, and I wish that it would just hush. Yeah. I, th I think we should see if anybody else has some yeah. questions. <laughs> I had a, a question. Just, just going back a little bit, we were talking about um, working on your hobby, like your, your model airplane, um, and you define your mind, getting into state of flow by hobby or by meditation, and you're getting into meditation stages six and seven, and you're saying the mind is training itself to, um, to unify at that point. And I'm trying to think of why this came to mind. I think I forgot what the question was about that. Um, but anyways, I wanted to just ask, but you're also doing something, oh, why you would take the, the breath as a meditation object as opposed to the model airplane. And isn't it, I mean, tell me, my sense is that also when you're meditating with the breath, you're also, you also can see emptiness or impermanence that way because you're starting to see what makes up the breath. Yeah, that's right. The, the, there are all kinds of things that are possible that are much more possible to happen more easily when you're meditating on the breath than they would if you were doing something like making model airplanes. Not that they couldn't happen when you're making model airplanes. But the other thing is that you start off, the breath is not very interesting, but as you practice, it becomes the vehicle for creating a state of flow and joy. The model airplanes you start off at the other end, the first one you ever put together, that's a lot of fun, so I want to do another one. And you find yourself doing more and more fancy, sophisticated model airplanes that cost more money and take more special tools and stuff like that. And if you didn't, in, in most hobbies, if, if you don't keep getting into them deeper and deeper, they lose their interest and fall away. The way to make model airplane building have a similar effect to meditation would be that you'd have to keep doing it even though it was no longer in, inherently itself satisfying. Doing it solely as a way of training your mind to become unified and enter into a state of judgment. So you make the same model over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> the intention would be the same. Yeah. Well, and you, you'd have to have the intention. Yeah, you'd have to have the intention that to to bring myself to a state of uh, focus and internal cohesiveness. In other words, it would no longer be about the model airplane that you were building, but how well Process. you were carrying on the process of building. Isn't one major difference too between meditation and a hobby like that? That a hobby is the focus, and in meditation you want to expand into a into a wider consciousness, and that's, that's the real difference. That is another difference, and, and as, as uh, Nick was saying earlier, the introspective awareness mm -hmm. yeah. is very important yeah. because you can be totally engrossed in a hobby and very happy, and Pretty much oblivious to what's going on in yeah. your mind. There's no introspective awareness. What if any activity that you choose, as long as your intention is to unify the mind, anything could be, serve the same um, thing yeah. that meditation does? 
Absolutely, and that's why. And that's what mindfulness. That's why we call it practice, and it's a good way to call it because you practice doing this so that you can do it in any kind of situation. You know, in this way, washing dishes can become an extremely enjoyable activity if you if you do it from the state of being fully present. You, you know my weakness. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I do know. You saw it. <laughs> you know, the stories we tell. Um, when I got my cast off, um, I asked the physician, okay, now what do I do for therapy? And he says, do dishes in mm-hmm. water. I said, oh, okay. And I, I went down the road, and we went out to breakfast at a, a, a cafe that we frequent, and the waitress knows us. And I said, hey, look, I got my cast off, and the doctor says, oh, I have to do dishes. And, oh, she was upset. She put her hands on her hips, and she messed with her pencil, and she frowned, and she says, my doctor had told me that I'd hit him in the head. And I'm like, whoa. And, you know, I was like, I was kind of looking forward to the, you know, nice warm water. Gosh, do you know how many weeks it's been since this hand has been warm water? I was kind of, you know, grooving on the idea. And then she reminded me that we're not supposed to like that hobby. Fooey aren't supposed to. The heck with the idea that you're not supposed to eat things. All right. Thank you very much.